World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Hello and welcome to the podcast. We're going to be taking a break over the summer as we prepare for next year and think ahead to the next and future episodes of this podcast. But we wanted to take a look back on some of the conversations we had in the wake of COVID-19. Across global affairs, we spoke to colleagues working in various different research areas about the issues at play during this pandemic and how it's being tackled. We started way back in April by speaking to Dr. Anne Kelly and Professor Mauricio Pabon in the School of Global Affairs in Global Health and Social Medicine. Anne and Mauricio spoke to us about the WHO, how it tackles global pandemics, and also how by looking at it, we can see how pandemics affect our cultural, political and economic life. The World Health Organization was one of many institutions organized in the wake of World War II as part of a kind of Bretton Woods system in order to encourage collaboration between governments to to head off the similar kinds of um, crisis that kind of precipitated um, during World War II. So the WHO, I mean, has an interesting kind of history because there had been previously a lot of, um, there had been international efforts around coordinating disease response um, back to the sanitary regulations, which were largely um, directed towards managing disease outbreaks that would come between countries, problems of cholera, smallpox, and really demanded some international effort in order to keep both countries safe, but also not to, you know, completely wreck the economy in terms of trade. So there is a there is a history of international global health diplomacy in that area. I think what's interesting about the WHO um, is that it also encompasses, in addition to this mission around, you know, infectious disease control, a broader set of norms and commitments to health as being a something that could link with development, that it's more than medical matters. So it comes at a moment where humanitarian crisis um, following the war, really captivating people's attention in terms of what, you know, health system strengthening might look like. So I think what's, you know, interesting to think through with the WHO is this negotiation between a very broad-based agenda about what health could be, but also a very particular set of event interventions around diseases, infection control, how countries manage relationships under situations of contagion and crisis. I wanted to emphasize this tendency of the WHO, which had a very dominant role historically in addressing disease control and other issues of health, to the emergence of very many new actors, especially uh, non-state actors in global health, as Anne was saying which has in some ways transformed the, the, the legitimacy, but also the power and the ability of the WHO sometimes to act as the only single sort of international agency. Um, when one of the things that has happened, for example, is since the 1980s, the uh, emerging importance of the World Bank in thinking about how we should design health systems, very much focused initially on issues of health system financing, basically meaning that the World Bank, which has traditionally had a very kind of neoliberal approach to health systems, pushed forward a very dominant way of thinking that in some, in some ways complemented the view of the WHO, but it also clashed with their views. Like Anne was saying, we have also, you know, the emergence of global funds to address particular diseases, but also to both strengthen health systems vertically and horizontally, so across different diseases or for specific diseases. 
And so in some ways, I feel like the WHO has struggled to find its role in this process. Now, one another point that I wanted to emphasize of the WHO is that since around 2008, more or less, the WHO has also trying to understand how global health also relate to wider political and social determinants of health. There was something called the Declaration of Rio in 2011, but also the WHO report on the social determinants of health, which really emphasized this idea that health is actually really more than just health systems and really involves the interaction with areas of policy that are outside of health. And I think this is something that we will increasingly see as very important, for example, in the COVID-19 epidemic today, how health has implications for the economy, how um, the economy itself will in turn have implications for health and so on. So I think the WHO is also redefining its role in trying to find a way to influence not only health system, but really broader policies outside of the health system. Anna and Maurizio there, giving us a sense of just some of the issues that we would come to learn much more about over the weeks and months. Next up, We've got Professor Craig Morgan and Professor Nick Rose. Craig and Nick from the Centre for Society and Mental Health sat down to talk to us about how mental health would be affected during the lockdown and during this global pandemic. They gave us insights into some of the research that they conduct, but also reassuringly gave us some tips and ways that perhaps we as a society could deal with some of the challenges we'd face. As Craig and I have said, in the, in the short term, everybody is going to feel certain kinds of distress and we shouldn't uh, pathologize that. In the medium term, uh, our view, my view certainly, is that uh, the mental health challenges are going to be greatest for those who are already in various kinds of vulnerable or disadvantaged situations. Because for them, the difficulty of managing without employment uh, the difficulty of managing without uh, secure income, the difficulty of managing on often quite inadequate welfare benefits, the difficulty of coping in very overcrowded circumstances for some or in social isolation for others, uh, if they're extended for a long period of time, may certainly lead to people feeling more distressed than they're able to cope with in their, in their everyday lives. So, uh, my sense is that in the in the medium term, what we ought to do is to focus on providing or rebuilding the kind of social support networks that those people in those vulnerable situations uh, require. There may be, of course, there may be a place for individual mental health interventions. Um, there are digital ones which Craig probably knows more about than I do. But we know that in many uh, disadvantaged communities, 10 years or so of austerity has stripped away the social supports in all sorts of ways. And I was pleased to see that uh, the communities minister just on Friday, I believe, announced that a very considerable amount of money was going to local authorities to try and rebuild those social supports because those local authorities are completely strapped for cash at the moment and they're running out of money and they don't have the money to prioritise the kind of supports which need to go to vulnerable communities and vulnerable individuals. I was just going to um, add to that and, and agree very much in relation to the kind of short, medium and, and long term effects. I think that but also differentiating a little bit the effects of different aspects of this. So there's worry, concern about the virus itself and, and the risk it poses to people's health. 
Um, but there's also the the um, worry and concern that relates to the lockdown, and that in particular has and is bound to have, I think, the strongest effects amongst those who are already essentially living at the kind of margins um, for whom uh, work is already insecure and for whom income is already uh, marginal. And um, and it's it's those losses that are going to have the most profound effect. And I think it's as this continues that those kinds of concerns and worries and so on are going to intensify and they're going to intensify much more so amongst people um, who are living with that degree of, of uncertainty. I think that there are other aspects to it as well, which I think are important to flag. There are particularly vulnerable groups, for example, women who um, are living in home situations that are problematic, possibly with a, a abusive and violent partners. And, and of course, the longer that this goes on, uh, the more difficult and challenging those situations are going to be. We've already heard charities talking about massive increases in reports of domestic violence and so on. So the, the long-term effects of the continued lockdown um, are, are potentially profound on our mental health, but it particularly so amongst the more uh, disadvantaged and, and vulnerable groups within uh, society. And I think that the one one other aspect to this, which is is important and, and it relates to what Nick is saying about the need for us to draw from our natural resources, possibly unique to this situation compared with other uh, similar kind of crises in the past, is that the, the, the lockdown actually takes from people the, the very source of natural support that might otherwise be available, that capacity to speak to, to socialize with uh, friends, family, to draw from that kind of input. Um, so we, we almost have a kind of uh, a double hit of, of, of massively increased anxieties around various kinds of issues, but also then a loss of the natural supports that might otherwise enable us to, to deal with those kinds of uh, challenges. And so I guess in terms of what needs to be done, then there's a, there's a lot I think that government can do to reduce the sorts of anxieties that people are experiencing. Um, particularly in relation to income, in relation to uh, work security, um, in providing for people who are uh, most vulnerable to be able to access sources of help and support and, and, and so on. So I think that there, there is a lot of dimensions to this, um, but also a lot that can be done by government and by policy um, over and above what we might do ourselves as, uh, in, in our kind of communities. Nick and Craig there. Reassuring voices at a time when our mental health is under particular strain. Of course, at Global Affairs, we have researchers working around the world and with colleagues around the world to look at how we can do things better, learn lessons. Dr. Robin Klingler-Vidra is just one of those researchers. Robin's work focuses on innovation and in particular lately has looked at Vietnam and what they've been doing. In this pandemic, Vietnam has had some real successes and so Robin's work has become really vital to understanding how we can improve things and how countries around the world can improve tackling this global pandemic. In our conversation back in April, we spoke about the new testing regime Vietnam had and how it had brought it about. That's right. In fact, Vietnam has been exporting its affordable test kits to Europe just as a, a signal of the effectiveness of uh, their quick response. So Vietnam hasn't been pursuing testing on the same scale as Korea, Germany, Singapore. It's made headlines for producing really effective and frugal test kits. So this in line with this broader frame of this frugal, effective response to the pandemic. Now, the way that they did it is, again, in, back in January, towards the end of January, 
Vietnam's Ministry of Science and Technology organized a meeting on COVID-19 with sort of thought leaders in, in virology, virologists from across the country. And this meeting really helped to instigate the development of affordable test kits. It put the development of affordable test kits at the top of the agenda. Now, from that meeting, there were a number of, well, three well-known and exported outside of Vietnam as well, three test kits, uh, one produced by the Institute of Military Medicine, one coming um, from an institute within the Vietnam Academy of Science and Technology, and another, as you mentioned, coming from university, uh, from researchers at the University of Technology in Hanoi. Now, these test kits were, according to some coverage, have said that these test kits should have taken years to produce in the way that they are so affordable to be run. Each test kit costs no more than $25, which has meant that as Vietnam's had to ramp up the number of testing, if you know, moving beyond the contact tracing and containment, it's able to increase the volume of testing that it's doing by virtue of this really quick response. These three test kits were ready in early March. I think March 5th was the date that all three of them were ready. One of them was ready a bit before that. Uh, and they all produce results in a very fast manner. Uh, so a maximum of 80 minutes. Uh, so just within an hour and a half, the tests produce the results. And these Test kits have been externally validated by bodies in Vietnam. They haven't yet been validated by the World Health Organization. But as I say, they have been exported to countries around the world, including to Europe, which I think is an indication of the quality and, and the hope that they represent. I mean, it is striking from your work that they were that the Vietnamese government were meeting on January 3rd to discuss the crisis, um, and they were implementing measures long before their first cases had even arisen. Um, it's also striking that they put testing at the heart of their strategy, and that seems to have been uh, key to their success. And that innovation-led approach um, has obviously brought benefits um, to the government in Hanoi. You mentioned SARS early on um, in our discussion. How important was that earlier crisis um, for governments like Vietnam uh, to learn the lessons um, of how to deal with a pandemic? Has it played a role um, in their successful attempts to tackle COVID-19? I think that it's a reflection of absolutely the muscle memory of the experience with SARS being paramount. Also being very aware of the large number of daily movements across the border with China and having this sense of urgency that we need to act now. We need to have our own means to test. We need to have a response systematized in how we are going to get a clamp down on this. You know, and they didn't wait until, quote unquote, we knew that there was person to person transmission. From the moment that there was word of there's a new SARS like virus in China, there was a jump into action and testing and having capacity to test within Vietnam's own government, private sector, university, within national borders, was of paramount importance. Robin there from the Department for International Development here in Global Affairs at King's College London. I know Robin's continuing to work with colleagues in Vietnam to look at how the state is innovating and how they're tackling COVID-19. So do look out for her research in the coming weeks and months. Of course, it's not just the Department for International Development that's working on looking at how the world is tackling COVID-19. The African Leadership Centre 
has been running a series of essays looking at how the continent is tackling COVID and how it's dealing with it. We had a special live event of the podcast in which we were joined by, amongst others, Professor Funmi Olanasarkin. Funmi, as a co-founder of the African Leadership Centre, spoke about the need for leadership and new thinking on the continent, but also how the COVID-19 outbreak presented opportunities to do things differently. We now need to really look at the question uh, of leadership. Uh, How successful have African states been when it comes to mobilizing their societies uh, to respond uh, effectively uh, to mitigate uh, the the impact of uh, COVID-19? And what we are realizing, what is becoming evident, again, you can say this is anecdotal because we're still trying to gather that data from uh, across um, a number of key countries. But it's evidence that we're seeing leadership emergence from outside of the state. And the big factor then, if we're seeing leadership uh, emerge outside of the state in response to, to, uh, to, to COVID, uh, the key issue is the extent to which governments, those who are managing uh, the state, uh, if you like, uh, the, the infrastructure of, of leadership, the extent to which they would actually converge and align with this new emergence that we're seeing. Uh, There has been evidence before that uh, leadership was available uh, in abundance outside of the state, but states uh, had been, it's been such that states did not necessarily look to those places uh, for innovation. COVID has brought all of that out. Secondly, um, putting that argument on the table, let me talk a little bit about the context. We have a context in which before now, uh, it was difficult to mobilize collectively uh, because of the huge inequalities in society. But what we thought initially at the start of uh, COVID-19 was that everyone was impacted, was, you know, affected in the same way. Even in this country and in the U.S. across it, we've seen that uh, everyone isn't affected in the same way. Certain people are more vulnerable to COVID, and we've lost uh, more lives in the, um, uh, you know, in the black community than any other place. People of color have, you know, uh, have experienced it in a, in a sharp, in a sharply unequal way. But therefore, when you look at that context uh, on the African continent, there are two things to take into account. If we are assuming that everyone is affected the same way, it isn't so because of the inequalities that exist. We can't even say these are all people of color. You're talking about largely, um, you know, uh, black and colored communities across the continent. So the assumption, though, that we had a leadership infrastructure that would respond to balance the experiences for all citizens, that's gone out the window. We do not have that kind of infrastructure because uh, the very hardware, as I've described elsewhere, which is, the site of management of the state had always had a poor relationship with the rest of society. So that software element of leadership was far removed. And we've now seen it with, uh, with COVID. We've seen it in two ways. One of the ways in which we've seen it is that you have middle-class uh, elite, upper-class elite, able to abide by the regulations. They can hunker down and stay home and isolate themselves from any form of danger. But we're asking the rest of the population to do exactly the same. 
So low class, working class people who, unlike this country where people have salaries, do not have any salary to speak of, have to eke out a living on the streets, cannot therefore, uh, you know, isolate. But at the same time, we're asking them uh, to socially distance themselves in particular spaces. They live in crowded places. So anyone, any African that understands this, that more than half of the continent in particular ways lives in crowded urban areas. And these young people too. Wallace's point about those young people might be asymptomatic carriers. Therefore, means the people who are on the streets on a day-to-day basis are exactly these people. This raises questions about the ability of the state to respond to this. But let me move on to my penultimate point. Therefore, when I talked about leadership emerging from outside of the state, I was referring to the innovations that are occurring because the real owners of Africa had to step up to the plate. And those real owners of Africa are these kinds of people. Networks of young people who mobilize to respond to the challenges around them, whether it is food um, or whether it's particular forms of communication just to keep the place running. We've seen other kinds of people step up in other countries. But you've also seen the ways in which young researchers have come up with innovations in engineering, uh, some places respirators, some places all manner of hand sanitizing, different kinds of masks and so on. That kind of innovation, you hope that governments will align themselves with it, and they have. Having said that, I think the exceptions for those states, some of those exceptions we've seen in Senegal, we've seen in South Africa itself in various ways, we've seen in Rwanda, we've talked about Uganda. Um, You know, the jury is out on many of these, but I'm not saying that all governments are the same. I'm not saying all governments are the same, but we have seen the majority of Africans um, on the margins of the state respond. And I call them the real owners of the continent because they are affected by this and they have responded in large numbers and across the board. The diaspora. So many of us have seen how diaspora remittances have begun to fill the gaps for, you know, for, for many Africans that COVID is having a biting effect on. So, so in that sense, let me make uh, my last set of points. If this is the case, what does this say about that leadership infrastructure? Because ultimately, we have to see more convergence between the managers of the state and the kinds of innovations that are being led outside of the state. Where you do not see that convergence, it spells doom. Uh, So peace and stability in Africa depends on the degree to which African leaders uh, across the board begin to align with those that have shown the innovations to lead and they're actually providing the way forward, both in response to COVID, but in response to other socioeconomic factors. And that convergence um, may not happen. Why? Because even where they should converge, where should you see a convergence that gives us a kind of leadership infrastructure that we need? Security, I mean physical security, not uh, just human security now. Reproduction of the state. In reproducing the state, elections are a big part of it, but they're not the full story. And what happens in those areas will tell us a lot about where uh, Africa is going. Professor Funmiola Nasak in there. And we hope to hear more from the ALC in future episodes and in future research. Please do check out their essay series. Next up, Dr. Margaret Kadiri, 
a lecturer in the Department for Geography. This clip is taken from a live episode we ran exploring how lockdown has affected our environment and how our environment is affecting our own mental health. Margaret spoke about how this COVID-19 pandemic presents us with an opportunity to rethink and look at how we tackle climate change. The pandemic has also created a great window of opportunity, actually, for a global reset. Keeping lockdown restrictions, of course, to April 2030 is not a visible long-term strategy. But a number of shifts that have been brought on by the pandemic has laid the groundwork for some of the transformations that are required. So as we start to come out from lockdown, we now have to choose to move forward on climate action at the same time as we are addressing the economic and societal impacts of the pandemic in order to use this opportunity productively to steer our societies towards a new paradigm that truly addresses the climate crisis. Because if we don't, we run the risk of going back to business as usual and losing many of the recent improvements we have seen. So I will now want to briefly talk about some of the responses in relation to action on the climate crisis. So just like the global health crisis, the climate crisis requires an individual to local to global response, which is guided by science, as well as the need to protect the most vulnerable amongst us. And this will inevitably be based on political willpower to make long-term transformations that are required. So this moment has forced us to dramatically change our individual behavior in order to protect ourselves and those around us. And it has, we have done that to a degree that most of us would never have experienced before or even think would be possible just a few months ago. So the pandemic has, has made our individual actions more visible than ever before. But it has also revealed that large-scale collective action to societal challenges is possible. So an equally dramatic and sustained shift in our individual behavior that is in harmony with nature and the environment will be needed to tackle the climate, the climate crisis and protect our environment. Now, on a global scale, there is a massive opportunity now to restructure economies in such a way that the true value of nature and the environment are taken into account. We need long-term recovery strategies that value the environment as the overarching framework within which we all exist, and not merely as an economic resource. A much more substantive shift from fuel combustion to clean renewable energy sources for energy generation is definitely needed now. Although some progress has been made in deploying renewable energy technologies over time, much more still needs to be done. Because even in 2017, coal, oil, and gas accounted for up to 81% of the world's total primary energy supply. And there are still plans currently to build new coal fire power plants and oil um, and gas infrastructures in several countries around the world. Even in countries such as Norway, where almost all the electricity generation now comes from hydropower, they still often rely heavily on profits from fossil fuels and uh, to fund welfare systems and pension schemes. 
And a recent report published by Imperial College London Business School and the International Energy Agency reveals that just despite renewable energy outperforming fossil fuels financially, total investment in renewable energy is still well short of the levels needed to put the world's energy system on a sustainable path. But we can seize this moment to increase investments in existing and emerging clean energy strategy and technologies and create jobs that would accelerate the pace of decarbonization. Governments could choose to take advantage of the current low oil prices to eliminate fossil fuel subsidies and raise the price of carbon for sectors which currently don't bear the full cost of emitting greenhouse gases. This moment also presents a window of opportunity for government and organizations to implement policies that would tackle the climate crisis and address the deep vulnerabilities and inequalities, some of which Helen spoke about, that exist in our societies and in our urban way of life, which has, made, which has been made a lot more visible by the pandemic. And these policies are wide-ranging, one of which includes expanding the space allocated for pedestrians and cyclists, which many cities from London to New York to Barcelona and Milan are aiming to do now as lockdown restrictions are being lifted. So in conclusion, this moment provides us with opportunities for a great reset. And my hope is that we choose to create a world that has at its core the health and well-being of people, as well as the health of the planet. Dr. Margaret Kadiri there from the Department of Geography at King's College London. As lockdown began to be eased in May, we had the sad killing of George Floyd in the United States and the protests, the Black Lives Matter movement, which came out of it. On the podcast, we were joined by Dr. Melissa Creary from the University of Michigan and our colleague in global health and social medicine, Professor Anne Pollock, to discuss how the ways in which COVID-19 had further demonstrated racial inequalities within our society and what we can do to tackle them. Here's Anne discussing how COVID has so clearly shone a light on the inequalities at play within our society. I think that one of the things that is maybe a bit distinctive of COVID-19 is that it's so obviously related to social and economic structures that's been unavoidably visible from the start. So, or at least from the start in the United Kingdom and the United States, perhaps not um, from the start in China. But as soon as it came to these countries, we were already starting to see that, you know, that who could shelter in place and who was still exposed was very much fissures that are both about class, but also are racialized. And um, that the living conditions in which people were sheltering in place were radically different in ways that are both racialized and class. And maybe there's something about that kind of awareness of the differential exposure and the differential privilege of isolation that, uh, you know, kind of for those who can afford it, maybe has made it a little bit easier to see that it often is that this is a social and political structure that is distributing disease, not something that's inherent to our bodies. And I think that one of the real challenges always in public health kind of discourse around inequalities is to remember that social determinants of health are made, right? So they're Sometimes I think that we get into this space where we're just like modeling statistics and putting in all the characteristics of all of our variables. And, um, you know, so kind of like 
plotting in demographic characteristics or other characteristics and using those to make cool graphs and not necessarily understanding that it's the imposition of social inequalities that actually makes those. It's not just kind of social determinants of health that just as patterns, oh, cool patterns. No, this is inequality and injustice that we're seeing. And it may be that the coincidence, right, of real visibility around police violence and real visibility about disease experience might help to make that a little bit more visible. That it is not about race causing disease, but about racism causing disease. And that living in a structurally racist society is what it is that makes the disease patterns that we see. I think one thing that might be helpful also for the podcast audience is to really think through how it might be that racism might cause disease in general. So both Melissa and I had a very formative teacher in Kamara Jones. I mean, Melissa at a more junior stage of her education and for me much later, but we intersected in Atlanta with Kamara Jones, who was the head of a working group on racism and health at the CDC and has done lots of other things. And she's also a epidemiologist and a physician, and she provides really helpful outlines of the ways in which racism shapes health. So really emphasizing that there are institutional factors that are large that have to do things with how our housing is organized and the structures of education and the structures of housing and the structures of the cities in which we live. There's also interpersonal. So how we engage with healthcare practitioners, how we engage with mortgage brokers, how we engage with so many people. Police, of course, being an important one, and then also internalized. So how we incorporate ideas from the broader racist society into our own understandings of health and what we deserve and what we can expect. And I think that, you know, when you really start to pull apart those levels, COVID-19 provides a very powerful window into those levels. Our colleague, Professor Anne Pollock, discussing the important issues raised by COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter movement in the continuing fight for racial justice, not just in the United States, but here in the UK and across the world. It just leaves me to say a special thank you to all the guests that have appeared on the podcast from across the School of Global Affairs in the last weeks and months. From everyone here in the School of Global Affairs, we wish you a happy summer, we hope you stay safe, and we hope you enjoy yourselves. We'll return in September, and we look forward to having more conversations. Until then, I'll leave you with Professor Craig Morgan, who set out how perhaps this COVID-19 pandemic can teach us something about how working together we can really tackle big challenges. Until next time, remember, world, we got this. I, I guess we all draw to a certain degree from our own kind of social backgrounds and, and social groups. And I, and I guess I could give a fairly personal example, which may relate to this, about how there's a tremendous amount of social solidarity that is there bubbling beneath the surface and, and is coming to the fore in this crisis. My parents are currently in a situation where they're um, isolated and, and in lockdown. We, um, or I come from, and, and they live in, in a town in Yorkshire. And within a very short space of time, the community has pulled together in a really tremendous way to ensure that um, those who are living in, in these kind of conditions get food, and that there's people who are going to supermarkets and delivering food, that there's access to medicines, that there's access to money, um, and, and so on. And in fact, my parents, who um, we, we lived during the miners' strike in the 80s, my dad was a miner, and, and their comment on this is that this is the spirit of the strike coming to the fore. This is the, the spirit of solidarity and togetherness and uh, looking out for one another 
in in situations of 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 extreme challenge and and I do think that we're seeing that I I'm not sure to what extent that's also occurring in other populations and social groups but I suspect it is I suspect there's a tremendous amount of that going on out there in in communities and that I think is is something that gives us a tremendous amount of hope for what might come from the crisis that there might be something positive and that these kinds of social connections that are there and that have not gone away could actually be fostered and could be part of a new approach to to the way that we relate to one another and to politics. You've been listening to the podcast World We Got This, brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. To find out more about the podcast and our work, head to our website, kcl.ac.uk forward slash world we got this. Here you'll find a full list of further reading materials. This podcast has been produced by James Bagley and Julia Stepawoska, with editing by Rachel Wall. To help us reach more people, please rate and review us in iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, remember, world, we got this. Music